Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What if you were about to make a massive investment, but were unsure what you would have to pay for the investment? Add on the fact, this investment would be one of the most emotional decisions that you would make not only in your life, but the life of your child. This is the situation that most parents find themselves in when determining what they will pay for their kids to attend college. Mark Salisbury, who spent much of his career working in higher education, wanted to change this by helping parents and students be better informed when deciding what college to attend and how much it would cost them. Mark created a company called Tuition Fit. Think of it as the Kelly Blue Book of college pricing. It is a free process where parents can upload their kids' college award letters and compare apples to apples what other kids have received from various colleges and universities. I believe in Mark's company so much that I decided to partner with him to create a better college planning experience for families. The first 10 families who contact me, Mark and I will personally walk you through the tuition fit process at no cost to you. Look for a follow-up conversation with Mark in a future podcast, as there are many topics on the college planning process that we weren't able to discuss in this episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Mark Salisbury. All right, Mark. So I I think the best place to start with our audience is to tell us a little bit about your background and all your experience in the higher ed, and then we'll move into the company you founded, Tuition Fit, and what th- what that's about, because I think this is going to be a really fascinating conversation today, and it's going to hit on a lot of uh, touch points and sensitive issues that I deal with families often, which is college planning. Yeah. Well, I started out uh, 25 years ago as a college soccer coach, um, and I spent a good six years of my career at Central Michigan, fire up chips. <laughs> Well, I, I live in, as you know, I live in Metro Detroit, so we've got a lot of uh, central yeah. grads. Yeah, I spent a lot of time driving from Mount Pleasant, Michigan, down to Detroit, and um, you know, fighting traffic, <laughs> no matter yeah. which way you went. And that's not a very scenic drive. <laughs> it is flat. It is very flat. There's no question. Um, and I drove it a lot. I think I probably could still drive it with my eyes closed. Um, but I spent a little bit over a decade coaching college soccer. And when you're a coach um, at a, in a sport that's not, you know, the big football, basketball, hockey, you're doing a lot of work, both as a coach, but you're doing a lot of work uh, with college admissions and really teaming up with them in a lot of different ways for a lot of different reasons. I burned out pretty good after 11 years of coaching college athletics. And went back to college, believe it or not, to do a PhD um, because I'd gotten a real bug for what, how does this higher education thing work exactly? Like, this is weird. There's a lot of stuff in here that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, So I went back to uh, the University of Iowa and did a PhD in studying how college works and how it doesn't work and how students learn and how folks make decisions about the things that they do prior to going to college and then in college. After that, I spent uh, a little bit less than a decade sort of eyeball deep in the data of how higher education works. Um, had a very nerdy job as a, what they call director of institutional research, which is <laughs> not a cool name. To I was going to say, what does that even mean? And where did you do that at? I was at a small college in Illinois called Augustana College. And what, what institutional research really is, what that job is, is, is um, you're sort of like the guy in front of all the buttons and knobs and whistles and, and uh, 
um, bar graphs and dials this watch and all the data that's going on at a particular institution, you're tracking everything from the budget stuff to enrollment patterns to faculty and students to classroom stuff. And if you're lucky, you get to track things like how students learn and how alumni then use that experience and succeed or don't succeed after college. And you're tracking that at your own institution. You're paying attention to how that compares nationally. You're reporting the data that's required to be reported to the federal government every year and to the accrediting agencies and states and all the different places that want to know what you know. And then you're spent, if you're lucky, you're spending a lot of time trying to figure out how do we get better at what we do and what data points do we have or do we need to get in order to figure out how to get better at what we do. So it can be a really fun job. But that's to me, that sounds fascinating, but I'm kind of wonky like that too. <laughs> it can like the the better title is like nerds on because you're really <laughs> like this nerdy of nerdy. And people have sort of assume that you just like king of spreadsheets. Um, but if you're lucky, you get to do things with the data. And my interest was it was really kind of a funny combination because I had spent all this time in coaching, which is very much about helping people improve and get better. And then at the same time, um, thinking about, well, you got to get results. So how do you get better at getting results, right? Then translate that into just a whole nother world where you've got a whole different set of data, data, but the same kind of things going on. How do you get better as a place? And then what's the data telling you about how that's actually working? And all of that combined to really make me focus on one of the key problems in higher education, which is the public is looking at a six-figure investment. And they know that they don't have money growing on trees in the backyard. And they know that if they get it right, that investment can pay off immensely for their kids. And if they get it wrong, it's not like the kid just moves back home and lives on the couch. If they get it wrong, the kid's in debt for 20 years. The parents are in debt for 20 years. They may not even be able to stay in their house. And retirement, forget about retirement. So the calculus, the, the, the tightrope that you walk there is really a big deal. And in that context, anybody who's shopping, and let's just use the term shopping for college. That's, it's what you're doing. But I don't think, and we're going to get into the details of this. I don't think people realize that that's what they need to do is yeah. to shop. You're right. You're right. Um, and there's a whole history to, to how we've gotten to that. But when people are looking at something that costs this much, the first thing in their head is, I got to make sure that whatever I end up with fits my price range. And that's something you need to know at the very beginning of the process. And nobody can find that out because until the company that I started, there was no data set that had the actual prices that colleges charge students. So let me, let me back up a second. So I first found out about you, Mark Salisbury and tuition fit through two resources. One is Ron Lieber, who's a New York times columnist who wrote uh, the book, the price you pay for college. And I just finished that probably a couple of weeks ago. The book just came out and that, that blew my mind. Ron went like he went deep and then he went deeper and then he went deeper. Yeah. He just kept going deeper and deeper. And I recommend that. And I'll put that in the sh link in the show notes, but that's a book that I highly recommend. And I'm sure that you do as well. Do. Yep. And then the other the other resource that I use often is Lynn O'Shaughnessy, and I'll, I'll link to her in the show notes. You were doing an interview with her a few weeks ago, and I'm like, I, I listened, I watched that, that interview between the two of you three times, and that's when I said, I reached out, I'm like, I got to get Mark on this because this is really hot because with the type of families that I work with, so mostly I work with parents 
between the ages of 30 and 55. I have younger kids coming on board and I have people that are retired. But a lot of the, the bulk of, of the people that I'm working with right now are getting to those years where their kids are starting to um, get into you know, sophomore, junior year in high school. And I'm getting more and more concerned. And I'm spending a lot of time researching this whole higher education field and listening to people like you and having these types of conversations that I'm trying to get out into the universe, not only for my own families, but you know, others just to create public awareness of what's going on because it's a really big issue. It, it has become an immensely important issue in part because the data is so clear that a, some kind of degree after high school is essential. Um, for any kind of success as an adult professionally. Um, and the lack of clear information is so pervasive that it sets up an environment in which it's very easy to send out marketing messages that gin up lots of fear and lots of panic. And when you are in that kind of position as a family, where it's, we, we have to help our kids get a good college education. And if we don't, we put them at serious disadvantage, not to mention we feel like terrible parents. One of the There's great a lot of guilt. <laughs> yes, a lot of good. That's one of the great parts about Ron Book is he, he really digs into the feelings that go with this um, challenge. And um, in the absence of any real data, there's so much, so easy to gin up lots of panic. And it's so easy to sell messages as the colleges and universities would do to get you interested in their place that are really driving emotions, but actually aren't really supported by what we know about college students and we know about success in and after college. So let's, let's stay there because that's a topic in Ron's book. And, and I'm sure there's some kind of work or correlation that you did in that nerdy uh, role that you had every is, day. <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't know about this is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm getting this wrong is CSL, which is something like learning, learning attributes, like what you actually walk away with from college. And a lot of, it's really hard to measure and it's difficult to get answers to questions you may have around, okay, well, what's my kid actually walking away with from college? Are there, is, are they getting the, the, or building the resources and the tools that they need to be successful and work? Because, you know, that's the one thing that, I know of with my career and you probably know with your career, it's like college didn't prepare me for what I do. Like I had to get into the workforce, but that college degree is that entry ticket that you have to have. Yeah. So um, I was a part of a big national study um, right before some of the stuff that Ron mentions in his book that was all focused on the same thing. Um, how, how much do students learn? What do they learn? And when they learn what's going on that drives that learning, and when they don't learn what's going on that stunts that learning. And um, the, the reports of, of, uh, that Ron talks about, the, the data that he talks about, where there's so much evidence that at every individual institution, there are students that learn a lot and there are students that don't learn anything. Um, that's the kind way in the data that we had um, and the data that he actually cites. Um, there's plenty of examples of students who actually got dumber over four years of college. And um, every single institution, there's a huge range of growth or no growth. And the difference between institutions is um, really not that much. There's far more variation within individual institutions that then overlap with every other college and university out there. And 
that evidence dovetails with a whole bunch of other things that we know, which is that um, it doesn't really matter which institution you go to. It's what happens while you're there and what the student does while they're there. And that really flies in the face of an awful lot of what people think when they engage the college search process. So going back to my, so before I founded Tama, I had a corporate career in accounting, finance, and operations. And so these ERP systems that I would always work with, both on the financial and the operation side are, are what drove, you know, how we ran a business, a manufacturing plant, a division, whatever you want to call it. And we always had this phrase, it doesn't matter what the ERP system is. If you put garbage in, you're getting garbage out. Mm-hmm. Is that, do I, do I translate that to what you're saying with, with colleges, with, with students? Like if, if they're not willing to put in the effort, well, then they're not going to get anything out. I mean, it seems pretty logical, but is, is that what the data says? Um, yeah, essentially. Um, <laughs> you know, calculus at Wayne State is the same as calculus at the University of Michigan, right? It's not different. Um, there's not extra chapters in Jane Eyre that they talk about at Michigan that nobody gave to the folks at Wayne State, right? And it really is true that what makes the difference when students really learn is the degree that they switch from just punching the clock, showing up, doing just enough to get the grades, and really sinking their teeth into learning. And it doesn't mean that every college environment is exactly the same. There are some institutions that really do a much better job of cultivating that kind of engaged learning environment. And, but there's still the step that the student has to take to make that learning work. And in the higher education space, colleges and universities really have gotten hung up on focusing on their features and not necessarily focusing on how do those features translate to the outcomes? And as a result, if you just focus on stuff that you have instead of the results that that stuff does or produces, you do end up in a situation where you may have a lot of data, but it's not great data because it's not actually connected to anything you're trying to accomplish. And in essence, there you go with garbage in and therefore you've got garbage coming out. It's funny that you mentioned calculus because I'm I'm sure you know who Scott Galloway is. I do. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm a I'm a fan of Scott. Obviously, he's a pretty polarizing figure. It's funny you mentioned calculus because I've I've listened to him go on a rant about they haven't changed how calculus is being taught in 50 years, but yet to your point, they teach calculus the same way at Central than they do at you know, Michigan or Harvard or Yale, but yet there's a big price discrepancy between what you're paying at Yale and Harvard versus what you're paying at Central Michigan. And you will be in a very similar class size, number of students in class. You'll be in a lecture hall that will probably look very similar with somebody down in front and a bunch of rows up. I mean, it really ends up being... um, an awful lot of similar stuff. And you're exactly right. The difference in price that the the same student, meaning the same academic pedigree, the same academic profile coming out of high school and a family with the same financial situation, going to college, they can spend, in some cases, spend $5,000 for the first year of college all in. And in other cases, pay $65,000 for the first year of college, all in. And the two places might have a bunch of different features, might have a bunch of different stuff, might even look really, really different. The point of the tuition fit project was very much at the beginning uh, and still is. Is it $65,000 per year better? Right? Is it, it, maybe it's $5,000 a year better, but until you have the data in front of you as a family, you don't even get to decide. So how do families get that data? Because to me, and it goes back to, I think I've heard you talk about this. I've 
I've heard Scott Galloway. I've, I've, you know, picked up on it in Ron's book. And we kind of talked about it a little bit is that the, the student has to be engaged with what they're doing. And a lot of that starts with a, the environment, but B really more specifically the professors, the people actually doing the teaching and how they can get connected with students. And, you know, I remember going back to when I started, you know, I started at GMI or now it's Kettering now in, in Flint, Michigan, you know, I had a professor that really took me under his wing my first year. I still hated the school and transferred after my freshman year. <laughs> but, you know, this this professor took a really strong liking to me. I don't know why. And I remember having dinner at his house multiple times. And that was always, always resonated with me and was a really big deal. I'm like, here's this guy who really cares about me um, and trying to help me. It, but when you're trying to look at schools like, you don't, you don't know anything about the professors really, unless you do a lot of digging and shopping will keep coming back to that. So that's like, that's like a huge wild card. Mm -hmm. Right. The, we're going to just sound like we're just continually getting promoting, getting out there promoting Ron's book, but there's a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff in there that's really smart and really good. And it, it's, it's backed up by decades of research on college student success. Um, and what we know about what makes for um, good decision making as you're looking at schools is finding out, don't, don't look at something like the student faculty student ratio, find out um, from the students when you go to class and you work and go to take a course. One, does the professor find out your name? Do they actually know your name? Two, do they know you at all? And do you feel like they want you to engage with them? Like come to their office hours, like email them a question from one of something you're working with. Do they feel, does it feel like they're really invested in your learning? And when you ask students at a particular institution that, even ask the tour guides, what you're listening for is not like somebody saying, oh, it's horrible here, because no one's going to do that. But you're listening for the difference between a vague, blasé sort of, oh, yeah, it's awesome. I remember this one professor that I heard about somewhere that was awesome, and he, I think he's still at our school, <laughs> versus, <laughs> no, I'm in this class and this class, and the professor, Dr. Jones, she has uh, meetings in the coffee shop once a week and we sit down and we just talk about whatever is going on in our lives. And she knows how to motivate me to help me get better. Um, she's really pushing me and she seems like she really cares about teaching. And those are the kinds of examples If students can cite that kind of clear, precise, concrete example. That's what tells you okay, this is a place that really is focused on learning. So let's, let's pivot back in to, to your role in tuition fit. And so, yeah. I, so I want to kind of pivot and talk about the, the financial aid, the cost component of this, because we, I think we could go on this topic for a while, but I think we're going to be able to go on this other topic for a while as well. So walk us through. So you've, you're in this nerdy wonky job college in Illinois. What transition, what happens that transition you from that role into starting tuition fit and walk us through what tuition fit is and what that transition was like. So I'm sitting in my office, I'm looking at all this data, I'm seeing how frustrated parents are and hearing about it from the admissions office and just talking to people um, and seeing how families are so frustrated with, just tell me what my price is gonna be because I need to decide which schools I'm actually gonna focus on. It actually costs money to go take a day off of work and go look at a school. Um, it costs money to apply to a college. Like I don't want to apply to a place that and spend a bunch of money and get my heart jacked up about a place only to find out I got in, but the price tag's way out of bounds. Like that's nobody likes that experience. And everybody's had something like that in their life somewhere where there's a little bait and switch. So 
I'm sitting there in my office and going, all right, well, these prices aren't hidden in a vault somewhere. Every year, colleges send out millions of award letters to students all over the country. And they're not real clear, but if you know how to read them, you can figure out what the actual price, what the billable price that that school is going to ask you to ask you to pay. I know from all the work I've done, the colleges organize their pricing in a much more simple way than they organize their decisions to get in. The admission decision is a whole nother kettle of fish, but the pricing thing is pretty much, look, your family's got this kind of income, your family's situation financially is this, your academic profile's that, so we're gonna charge you this price over here. And they got a big graph that lays that out. So if we could just create a way for the public to share those financial aid offer letters and get the students to, and families to share just enough about their financial context and their academic context, we'd know that that college gives that price to that type of student, zoom it out by several thousand and redact, protect everybody's private information. So you're anonymizing everything, but you're organizing it by price and student type. You essentially have a Kelly Blue Book for college prices. And so we started doing that a couple of years ago and the public started sharing data. And we had people just coming out of the woodwork saying, look, we, we've already made our choice, but um, if this could help somebody else, we'd love to give it to you. And we started to build a data set. And now we're a little over 10,000 award letters in the system, offers in the system. and. Families can come to tuitionfit.org and get some clarity about what schools are going to be in my price range. So where should I start to focus? And then once you're seniors and you've got financial aid offer letters, you can share them and see what other students like you have been offered by that school and other schools and use that to make a more informed choice about whether the price you're being offered is a decent one, whether you should negotiate, whether you should just walk away, put it in context and Make a confident decision. So how, so how long ago did you actually start receiving these you know, offer letters from families? And how did you even start it? Like, that's, that's why I'm still kind of interested. Like, how did this even start, Mark? <laughs> well, it really, I, can, I mean, I still remember sitting at home and looking out the window thinking, what if we just did this? I mean, crowdsourcing is not a new idea, right? Yeah. Um, and the car industry was disrupted and really, and a whole lot of innovation in the car industry was 20 years ago when Edmonds and some of these others started getting the public to share the actual prices they paid for cars. So crowdsourcing is not new. What if we just did it in the college environment? Yeah, there's a big jump between, okay, I'm sitting in my office at work. I've got a job. I've got a salary. Um, and I... I I know higher education well enough to know that it's just not an entity that's very nimble. It's just not an entity that's any good at changing anything substantial. And usually it's, it's, it's like lots of big corporations where you make a choice about something, you see that it might have some potential, you see that it might have some collateral damage and some problems, but instead of going back, you, you just, you know, sort of paper over where the problem is and just keep going. And then systems get built People get hired, budgets get organized around that new papered over level. And then you paper over those problems. And then right. pretty soon you got layers of paper and duct tape and rubber bands. And the thing's still creaking and screaming because you got this core problem. But instead of like tearing it all up to start and fix that thing, especially if the rest of the context has changed, you just keep doubling down on the thing you did at the beginning. And higher education is famous for that. And so I, I kind of sat there with my assistant and said, you know, I think this is the only way to fix this. I don't know a better way. And then you look in the mirror and you go, well, if nobody else is going to do it. <laughs> and that's the moment where you really are like, you crazy. You know that, right? Right. <laughs> crazy, yeah. right? But we just decided to go for it and see. And um, believed in believed in the power of the public to want to change this thing. We need to change this thing because we need higher education. We, just to be a functioning democracy, we need educated populace. 
So we need education for jobs. We need education for students to just help them grow up. If we're reduced to a world in which everything's just online, I think we miss out on a whole lot of really important stuff. And the data would suggest that that's true. So my uh, colleague and I decided, all right, let's go for it. And that was in the 2018, January, 2019, we launched Tuition Fit. Okay. So then where did, how did you get the first um, award letters to get funneled in? Like how, how did you get this out to where people knew about you that say, okay, I feel comfortable. This is a two-part question. How do I feel comfortable giving you the information and then what information am I giving and how do you protect it? Yeah, we, we were really careful about a couple of things right out of the gate. We, we really, we said to ourselves, one, it's got to be a free exchange, right? You share information, see information. And two, this at its core is a trust exercise and you have to earn people's respect in order for people to engage in a trust exercise. If I'm going to share something that's potentially personal or has my personal information on it, um, I got to trust that you're not going to turn around and sell it to the highest bidder, right? So we had to build a process that was really clear about protecting that. So we built a process where when families share a financial aid offer with us, we redact all the private information in the letter and then show them the redacted version before we proceed to put it into the system. And the user has the final approval. So if the user says, you know what, I'm still not comfortable with it, even though it's been redacted, I still feel like it's too easy to tell it's me. They can just pull it and then it never makes it into the system. Um, Usually what happens is people see the redacted version and go, oh yeah, of course. There's no way anybody, there's no way anybody can figure out this is me. Um, And we don't sell the personal data. We don't share it. We don't give it away. We don't, that, that is, you know, people's personal information is sacrosanct. And this is a side issue, but one of the reasons higher education is in such the mess that it is, is that a bunch of organizations built this idea that we're going to have a revenue model where we're selling and sharing information. And so the meta effect of that is that everybody gets box loads of brochures and emails and Facebook ads and everything else. And the noise that that creates just gets everybody to just tune it out entirely. So nobody listens. And the meanwhile, everybody's cranking out and paying hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars to generate all that noise. And nobody's listening to it. And of course, where's the money coming from to pay for all that? Tuition. Yeah. And who's paying the tuition? The families. One of the reasons college is expensive as it is, is because of this whole monster around it that's trying to fix this lack of good information, this lack of a fair playing field, um, this very basic, what economists would call an efficient marketplace. So what kind of information are, are parents or families giving you? I'm assuming it's like, so you have the award letter, but then they've got to give you supplemental data, like um, they're Adjusted gross income, you know, number of dependents, you know. Yeah, we don't even have to. We don't go nearly that deep. Okay. We don't have to. Um, Because essentially, even though it's a terrible formula and there's a whole bunch of reasons why, the FAFSA produces the free application for federal student aid that most everybody has to fill out or does fill out um, just because they're told to. Um, And it's certainly the way that you qualify for any need-based federal or state aid. Um, and sometimes at institutions that have need-based aid, they'll, they'll use that formula. At the end of that formula, it spits out something called the expected family contribution. Yep. EFC. EFC. And it's a terrible proxy for your actual family financial situation. But everybody gets stuck with that same bad proxy. And so that number is a good representation for the purposes of organizing folks of your financial situation. 
So all a family has to do is share their EFC. And just seeing some of these EFC, there's actually a whole lot of variables in there that make it so it's kind of hard to be sure that you know much about that family's adjusted gross income or number of kids in college or any of this other stuff. But that's what the colleges use. And even the most selective schools, they'll use something called the CSS profile. But that's essentially the EFC on bad steroids, right? So um, EFC for is all we need for financial status. And then we just need um, high school GPA, unweighted high school GPA, which usually you can find on your transcript or get from your counselor. And then if you have an ACT or SAT score, share that. So it's just those three data points is really all we need. And we're not trying to predict for you what your price is going to be. Predictions got no upside. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's a thing that, you know, it was really fun when you had a magic eight ball and you shake it. And the one time <laughs> you got it right, you were like, oh, wow, that's cool. But it wasn't really that cool because you already knew that. The really bad stuff is when you get something that's totally bananas, but you then decide to operate on that prediction and then things go horribly wrong. Predictions got no upside. And that's the problem with a lot of the tools that are available is they'll try to predict for you what your price is, is going to be at school X or school Y or school Z. And oftentimes they're wrong and they might not be wrong by a lot, but a lot usually translates into three, four, five thousand dollars. That's 20 grand over four years. And you chose not to look at some other places because you thought this prediction might be right. And now you're stuck. So prediction's really not a helpful thing. And instead for consumers, what's more helpful is what's the actual prices the colleges are charging, students just like you. And then you can triangulate from there and you can start to make more informed decisions and you got leverage so that if you decide to talk to somebody, you can negotiate because you know. So let me, ironically, this just happened last evening. Um, <laughs> I, I was, I was uh, catching up with a, a gentleman that, that I, I work with. And he said, hey, you, you give me an update on his, on his daughter who had just gotten in um, to a school. I won't name the school. She did very well in high school. And so the school's giving her like a fifteen hundred dollar, you know, merit scholarship for like the just only of the first year. Right. Other schools she applied to, she was getting almost full rides, but she wanted to go to this school, and their parents had saved diligently, and they 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 had planned for it. So they're like, "Well, this is where you want to go. We planned for it. It's okay." But then then he turned around and said. Well, we know another family going to the same school, um, not as strong academically, and they got a boatload of money. And I'm like, well, give me a couple of days. I'm going to have Mark Salisbury on the podcast <laughs> tomorrow, and I'm going to throw this example at him. So, so you have this situation. Walk us through like how, how you deal with it. Because like, this seems like this is like ideal scenario for tuition fit. Yep. This is a situation where, first of all, you got a family that's planned for it. Okay. So they've saved the money so that they've, they've got a financial situation where they can make this work without really putting themselves over a barrel. Um, Which I will say is the, the exception most yes. more, more likely than the norm. Yes. So that's actually a sort of, okay, if you've got the money for it, and you choose to spend it that way, that's your call. Okay. Um, because everybody's ultimate decision is a relative value decision. Is it worth spending this money for that school? And every individual has a different calculus and, and it should be that way, right? You pull some data in, but at the end of the day, you might value different stuff. Set that aside. Now you're at this late stage where you still don't want to pay more than you should, right? More than right. you have to. So, this is where tuition fit becomes really valuable. Families share their financial aid offers that they've got. So your colleague would share their information with tuition fit. 
process it. And then because they shared, that's their ticket in. And now they're seeing the offers that hundreds of other students, just like his daughter, in terms of financial situation and academic profile, they're seeing the offers that hundreds of other similar students have shared from whatever colleges they got into. So now you can take the offers that you've got and put them in some context and say, hmm, generally I'm actually getting a pretty good deal for this price compared to what else is out there, whether I applied there or not. And folks that say, oh, but the deadlines and oh, this other stuff, um, there's a whole other story about that, but higher education for most schools, they're recruiting all the way to August. They don't make their classes by May 1st. The deadlines is just about the schools trying to get you to be afraid enough to buy it at their cost. So set that aside for a second. Okay. But now you can see your prices in the context of all the other prices. And first, your colleague says, yeah, there's a huge range of prices here. And I'm seeing that I'm seeing how my prices sort of sit in the, in the big picture. Then you can start to strategize. So if you know that this other student um, or if there's other prices that are there that just don't seem like they're similar to yours, it tells you something about what you should do next. And the first thing that every family should do, no matter what, is just, call and start a relationship with the financial aid office and say, one, make sure I understand that I make sure I understand what your financial aid offers is actually offering. Um, and two, start to set the groundwork for a, look, this is costing us money. It's expensive. We've got other plans. We've got other kids that we need to send to college. We've got plans for graduate school, whatever those things are. And there's a lot, and I'm not sure I can justify the value difference. And push the school to either defend the price that they're offering or to be willing to reassess. Um, it's a not a well-known secret, but it's becoming more well-known. Most colleges, the first price you get is not their best price. It's just not. Now, they may not decide, they may decide not to move, but they've absolutely got wiggle room on every single price they send out. And they won't even consider wiggling if you don't call them. So the first thing you got to do is start to ask. And then it's a discussion where you really need to, as a family, first of all, um, nobody was successful in negotiating if they weren't willing to walk away, <laughs> right? Right. So um, in this case, if their child is just, that's the school they want to go to and they really can justify the value and it really makes sense and if everything's planned for and da-da-da-da-da, well, then you ask them for a better price and if they don't give it to you, but you're still going to go, all right, well, then you're going to go. Um, but now at least you know that you're paying a lot more than other people are to get to that place because you've decided that place is where you should go or want to go. And there is a whole nother conversation about should go because it's the best value versus I just want that. Right. Sometimes there are people that go out and buy the Porsche, don't have a shot at being able to make the payments, but they just want it. So they buy it and they cross their fingers. Not a great life strategy, but it happens, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Um, I, I haven't said this yet. I'm surprised. But when I hear somebody say dream school, it, that just sh- sends shivers up my spine because you're, you're, that student slash family is already locking themselves into a, a, a college university without any regard to you know, financial data at all. And that, that scares me. Think, I mean, think about this from the standpoint of running your own business, right? If, and and this, set aside like any moral judgments here for a second. But if you're running a business and your revenue source is basically one thing, let's say you're running a restaurant, you got to have food and you got to sell food in order to keep the lights on. If somebody comes in and says, look, you're my dream restaurant. I just love you guys. You're just phenomenal. I'll eat whatever you serve. 
It's not crazy to think that in the back of your head, you're hearing cha-ching, right? That's right. Yeah. You're hearing cha-ching and you're going to get them to buy the, the appetizer and you're going to upsell them for the extra sweet potato fries and you're going to get them to buy dessert and cough. Like you're running a business, right? And you're not forcing them to buy it, but you recognize that this is somebody who may spend a lot in your restaurant and you want to give them a good experience, but you're happy about that, right? So families, when they go into the college search process and they fall for this idea of a dream school, which is great in the movies, it's in the movies though. That's like, that's why they call it dream. Like you're not awake in a dream, right? That the college says, yeah, good. In fact, we'll build a system called early decision where you can apply to us and you have to promise not to apply anywhere else. And then you have to agree that if we accept you, you'll take whatever price we give you because we're your dream school, remember? And sure enough, early decision is now a huge way for colleges that run that kind of, that can get away with running that kind of a, of an operation to fill a huge piece of their class and charge more to do it. And it's, it's not like they're evil. It's just, they're a business it's business. Too. Right. And so as a consumer, you really have a responsibility to think about that and to do some smart kind of, is it really worth this? Like do some ROI thinking because you do have other things that you could spend your money on. Your kids, if they want to go into a, most professions are going to require some graduate school. What if your kid wants to start a business because they saw you start a business and you could help them get started with a chunk of money or you could spend it on four years of college and then have nothing to help them start their business with. Like, what would you do, right? Like there, there is a whole bunch of, stuff to consider as a family that play the long game in thinking about this and think of college as just another phase in the long game and start thinking about it that way. And it really should change the way that you um, run this calculus. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. It's not, you're not just making a snapshot decision in time. This has a ripple effect on your kids' life, your life, as we talked about before, you know, parents, you know, are really struggling on, on how to pay, taking money out of 401ks, you know, which full disclosure, I highly do not recommend. I do not recommend taking money from 401ks, retirement plans, because you're just robbing yourself in the future. And so, um, but let's, let's go back to my colleague, for example, and walk us through. So he's interested in doing this. How does it work? Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing is, is being able to know what context you're in, right? Because if, if he doesn't know anything about any other offers that, any, that anybody might have from that institution that are different prices, right? If he doesn't know anything about that, you have really no idea how to strategize. And there's a strategy to being successful here, right? Um, there's a strategy, certainly, how not to be successful. You don't call up the school and just rant and say, my kid's way better than this, because you won't get a dime. Um, just won't, because they're human beings and they'll just be mad at you. <laughs> right. So the first thing is get a sense of where this sits. So, they, might, so, they'll, so they'll, come, they'll come to tuitionfit.org and, and that's where in, they start putting in their information? Yes. Yep. You create an account on tuitionfit.org. It's free to do that. Um, you plug in an EFC, you plug in some high school GPA and, and um, uh, test score information if you've got it. If you don't have a test score, that's fine. And then you upload their financial aid offer letters. You just take a picture of it with your phone or scan it on your printer, upload it. We take care of the rest. And it takes a little while to process um, because one, we verify that it's real make sure it's just the right school. Sometimes people will say that they've got an offer from Loyola, Chicago, and they actually got an offer from Loyola, Maryland. So we got to make sure yeah. it's the right school, right? Then we redact all the private information like we talked about before. 
calculate what's the actual price that they're going to ask you to pay. And a lot of times the financial aid offer letters aren't very clear in that. So we want to make sure that we can tell you this is the price that's going to be on your bill in the fall. Then you approve that award letter. And now as a function of that, you get to see all this other stuff. So that's the first step. And as soon as you do that, you now can start to strategize because you can see how does the price that I've got, how the price is that I've got, because you've uploaded a bunch of award letters, how's it compare? And if you decide, okay, that school, school X, that's the school that we really want our daughter to go to, maybe for, for all really well-justified reasons, because we really believe in the way they do what they do, and um, they uh, have good graduation rates, and they've got good job placement rates, it's close to home, or it's far away, whatever it is, we've decided that's the place. Okay, so now it's, how do we strategize to try to get a little bit more money? And one, where does this sit, right? Because how much more money, right? And in order to know that, you have to know sort of where it sits. So then you can start with the institution. And you first is just call them up, make sure you understand their award letter and you have a relationship with them and you're telling them how much you really love their school and you want to go there and you're being honest and professional and genuine. And then you're telling them like, yeah, this is a challenge for us for whatever reason. There is an appeal process that's more uh, traditionally used if your financial situation has changed radically from when you completed the FAFSA, which for virtually everybody, that's the case now. <laughs> yeah. so you use that process as well. But then you can also say, look, we're just, we know, we know some other prices because we're using other tools. We've seen tuition fit. We know what's out there. And we're having a hard time justifying the value difference. We're having a hard time justifying that your school is asking us to pay $20,000 more per year than several other places. We're not saying you got to get to match necessarily, but help us justify this. And that puts it on the institution. The institution makes two choice, a choice really at that point. They can say, no, we're not going to justify it. That's your price. Take it or leave it. Or they can say, all right, let's have a sit down. We're going to PowerPoint you through why it's really worth this amount of money. Or they're going to say, we hear you. We know college is expensive. Let's see if we can figure out a way to make the price a little bit closer to what you need to be. Do you have a sense, Mark, of... And I, I know it's all relative, so I'm putting you on the spot with this question, but do you have a sense of the direction colleges usually take with that? Do they say, nope, not doing anything, or are they willing to work with you? Um, so two things vary. One is, if it's an institution that's really selective. Like an Ivy League. 100,000 applications. Um, you better be in really rarefied air, either because your financial situation is really, really a mess, but you've still managed to get in or because you have some really funky things that have happened to be able to make a case because it's a supply demand thing, right? Right. Um, at other institutions, and there's a whole bunch of them in Michigan that are just dying for students. They need students, period. So they're much more willing to work with you to find a way to make that price something that you can pay because they know that they're not really making any money off of freshmen. They make money off of sophomores, juniors, and seniors because they increase their tuition while giving you a set dollar amount for financial aid. So if you don't come as a freshman, you're not there for them to generate revenue as a sophomore, junior, and senior. So it's in there. They're motivated to try to make this work for you, right? So one is if it's a super selective place, your chances of negotiating are a lot smaller than if it's a not so selective place, if it's a place that's traditionally just needs students, right? The second thing is time of year. So if you try to negotiate with a school in January, everybody's got rose colored glasses. Everything looks great. We're gonna make our numbers this year. It's gonna be good. I'm not particularly motivated to negotiate as an institution. But we have models that project out how many tuition deposits we need to have in January and in February and in March. And we haven't projected it out, not just by the week, but by the day. 
Oh, wow. Paid a consultant to figure out what that is. And it'll vary. But usually what happens is when a school starts to slip from those projections, their system isn't really designed to be able to catch back up. So when you get into March and then you get into April and you see that you're behind in your deposits, now you're more motivated to negotiate. So for families that are wanting to pursue this path, don't do it in January. Wait until March, April, May. And by the way, the school might say they really want you to decide by May 1st. If you want to, go ahead and call them and say, are you going to pull this offer on May 2nd? The answer is almost always no. I'm not going to pull it on May 2nd. We're not evil people. But in a lot of other schools, May 1st doesn't mean anything because they're not close to filling their class by then. So you want to initiate that conversation, not in August, because then it's panic time for everybody, but later in the process when the institutions are motivated to negotiate. Sort of like when you buy and sell cars, the beginning of the month versus the end of the month, right? Right, exactly. End of the month is when the salesperson's got to make their quota, um, figure out a way to sell a few extra cars. The dealership's got to make their quota. They seem to be just a little bit more motivated to make a sale at the end of the month. Two days later, the beginning of the month, eh, we'll wait. (laughs) So when, when you go ahead and upload your information and you start being able to compare back, do you... So when I'm looking at other offers that people, other, other families have gotten, do I have a sense for their financial situation? Like if, okay. So because you plugged in your EFC and for families that don't fill out the FAFSA, they just choose not to, you can always plug in an EFC. That's an estimated one. Just do an EFC estimator from somewhere online um, and plug something in. But once you've done that, you've set the category of offers then that you're going to get to see. So everything that you're seeing once your intuition fit is already set up to be awards that were shared by students just like you, both in terms of EFC and in terms of academic profile. So you're already set. You don't have to worry about that. You know right out of the gate. So you're getting that apples to apples comparison. Right Not apples to oranges. Apples to apples. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm like looking at my list of questions and I still got a bunch, but I know I only have you for a finite period of time. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of wrap this up and, and hopefully I'm going to be able to get you back on because I think this has been a great conversation. You're, you are an extreme wealth of information. And like I said, there's a lot of other topics that I, I didn't get to. Um, but my last question was my closing question for all my guests is what is the best thing about being a parent? Uh, that's a great question. Um, for me, and I have two boys, one of them is 20 and one of them is 11. Um, one of the best parts is just seeing them both emerge as young people, in very different ways. They're very different from each other. Um, but seeing them um, interact and these two really get along, even though they're pretty far apart in age. But for, for me, I think that the best thing is when, you, when you're a parent, you get the chance to see how the world looks through a different set of eyes that's at a very different place in their own growth. And that lens is really useful in sort of setting you straight, right? Like getting you to sort of reset and realize that the whole world isn't just the way that you see it. The whole world is the way that lots of different people see it. And those different perspectives are really important to understand and to, to empathize with. And, when you have kids as a parent, if you're paying attention, you really get that opportunity. And 
you learn so much about them and about the world when you take the time to see the things and appreciate things through their eyes, as imperfect as that might be sometimes. Well, I think that is a fitting way to close this first conversation with you, because like I said, I, I know you're going to be back on. Um, Mark, I can't thank you enough for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. And as far as Tuition Fit, it's just tuitionfit.org, correct? Right. Okay. Families can come to tuitionfit.org. It's free to set up an account. And both for families that have high school seniors that are looking at this key question about trying to negotiate and get the best price now at the end of their process and families that are at the beginning of the college search and trying to find the colleges that will be in their price range, you can get that information from tuition fit as well. And we'll just have to leave that there for our conversation next time, but I'm looking forward to it already. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Mm-hmm.